So, Eula, mm-hmm. when I was in grade school, I kind of broke a glass ceiling. Ooh, this sounds cool. Tell yeah. me now. <laughs> so, I was one of the first girl altar servers in the Catholic Archdiocese of Chicago. That's a big deal. Yeah, right? Our parish priest was kind of a hippie, and he thought it was dumb that only boys could be altar servers. Because it is. Right. He was totally correct <laughs> about that. Yeah. So, he let me and a handful of other girls become altar servers as well. Too cool. It was really cool, actually. So every Sunday Mass, there were two altar servers. And I loved that I got to be up on the altar with the parish priest in my robes in front of the entire congregation, including my family, serving Sunday Mass. It was great. Yeah. Yeah. Felt like your time to shine. It was, well, it was really cool, except there was this one Sunday where the other altar server didn't show up. And so I was going to have to serve mass all alone. I'd be the only altar server there. So you shine even brighter. Uh, No. Wait, what'd you do next? I hid in the coat closet the entire Sunday mass. I did. I just, I hid. I didn't go out. I didn't do my job. Jeannie, so you didn't do your job at all? I did not do my job at all. I was terrified, Eula. I just, I really didn't feel like I knew enough to be able to serve the mass by myself. I just, I didn't think I was ready for it. Oh, my gosh, Jeannie, I can totally relate. I mean, like, at this job. You're like my security blanket here. Oh, what? Like my other altar server. Yeah, I mean, if you weren't here today, I'd be hiding in one of these closets where you keep all the public radio tote bags. (laughs) Oh, you're kidding me, Eula. We've been doing this for a while now. I know, but I still feel like a fraud sometimes. I mean, walking into the world of public white man radio, right? As you can see at the moment, I appear young at the age of 33. You're youthful. I appreciate that. And I'm black. And um, so many people that I picture when I think of public radio are like, I guess I would say like experienced in age. Are you trying to say they're old? I mean, I didn't say it. (laughs) Or white, right? Or men, right? And so because I can't see myself or rather, you know, hear myself in the role I'm in, it's hard to see myself in the role I'm in. Does that make sense? It totally does. But we're not alone. I mean, lots of people have grappled with feeling like they're frauds or they're not good enough. It's called imposter syndrome. And that's today's battle. All right. We'll look at why so many of us feel imposter syndrome in the first place and what we can do to fight back. Let's get it. This is Battle Tactics. For your sexist workplace. I'm Eula Scott Bynum. I'm Jeannie Yandel. And yes, your workplace is sexist. Even if you've worked there forever. Yeah, and even if you, like me, work for yourself. This episode, we're tackling imposter syndrome and how to fight it. So first, let's define imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. Noun. A collection of feelings of inadequacy that persist regardless of any conflicting evidence. Imposters suffer from chronic self-doubt and a sense of intellectual fraudulence that override any feelings of success or external proof of competence. Okay, let's explain why a man is defining imposter syndrome for us. See, usually there's some random guys on the internet who can't wait to tell us how every facet of workplace sexism is either not real or women's faults. Right. But not with imposter syndrome. Nearly everyone feels like a fraud at some point. 80% of us, according to some recent research. You are a sweaty, neurotic, dressing-gowned loser, somehow towing the start line at the front of the London Marathon Pack. This particular random guy from the internet has felt imposter syndrome so keenly, he's written a poem about it. That's cute. Life is the London Marathon, but no one's closed the roads. I mean, whatever. I have no idea what this random guy from the internet does for a living, but I do know this. 
part of what's so insidious about imposter syndrome is that people who are clearly kicking ass at work still feel it. Right. Michelle Obama has talked about feeling imposter syndrome. Maya Angelou, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. And this ass kicker. I mean, I constantly feel like an imposter and have to remind myself very frequently that I actually am the best person for this job. This is the wonderful Jessica Bennett. (laughs) She wrote the book Feminist Fight Club. Jessica is also the first gender editor at The New York Times. That's a new job. But Jessica says her imposter syndrome goes way back. I had just been hired to be a columnist at Time magazine. So this is my first column. And I basically kept writing and rewriting and rewriting in circles my first few sentences thinking they were awful and entering into this oh my god why did they hire me for this I'm not capable of being a columnist they're going to find out I'm terrible um they should fire me maybe I should just quit so it's worth mentioning here that Jessica was writing her first column about a book called The Confidence Code the subtitle of that book is The Science and Art of Self-Assurance What Women Should Know oh my god it's like Inception All of this is happening while I'm like sitting alone in my tiny studio apartment and have nobody to kind of snap me out of it. And the irony, of course, is that I'm literally writing about a book that's about this feeling. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was the first point I think I really realized that this was something I experienced. So all these people feel imposter syndrome, but there's a reason we're talking about a feeling that nearly everyone experiences on a podcast specifically about sexism at work. When women or people of color do something, they are scrutinized more harshly than a white man would be. This is one of those things that I think gets in your head. And so whether it's conscious or not, I think it sort of begins, at least for me, this spiral of like, Have I done this perfectly? Is it perfect enough? Does it need to be better? Do they see the flaws in it? And I think it can really get in your head. Eula, I think basically everything hits women harder, especially women of color. But not male pattern baldness. That is an excellent point. That's one thing. Thank you. One thing. Yeah, we get one. Yay. No problem. But come on, let's drill down on how imposter syndrome hits women and people of color harder. In part, it's our workplaces. They weren't built for us. I mean, a lot of places were built by us, hey, black people, but not for us. So those nagging feelings we get that we don't belong, those feelings get reinforced more for us. I do think that to some degree, imposter syndrome is an internal barrier that we can overcome. But it is an internal barrier that is created by patriarchal systems. So like, why do we feel like we don't belong? Or why do we think that people are going to find out that we are fraudulent? Well, because we've been told for all of history that we don't belong or that we're not smart enough or that we're not meant to be running companies or countries or organizations or even being freelance writers. The patriarchy is making you feel like the imposter. Hey, Eula, want to play a game I like to call how the patriarchy makes us feel like imposters? (laughs) I love I love games, but this sounds terrible. The upside is we've been playing it our entire lives, so we're probably going to be good at it. Okay, Okay. I sound ready. (laughs) Yeah. So let's do this. Okay, so what do Yahoo, Hewlett Packard and the British government have in common? Oh, I know this one. Okay, so they're all entities that were complete messes. So women were brought in as leaders to clean everything up. And then in nearly every single case, they were publicly criticized and remembered as complete failures. Yeah, that's what happened. Right. And that pattern of making women very visible leaders of organizations only when those organizations are in crisis has a name. There's this concept called the glass cliff. 
And it's this idea that when things go wrong, often a woman is brought into a company or an organization to kind of fix the problems. And yet, if you're being brought into an organization that it's a, is a complete fucking disaster, you're probably not going to do that perfect a job of cleaning up the mess. And yet there's this pattern that we often see when women are brought in and then they don't perfectly clean up the mess. They are viewed as failures in some way. Let's look at what happened at Yahoo. In 2012, Yahoo was in big trouble. So Marissa Meyer got hired as the new CEO. She'd been a big deal at Google and people were really excited when she got the Yahoo CEO job. But then like within a year of her hiring, we started seeing news stories like this. Embattled Yahoo CEO Marissa Meyer says she hopes to be with the company at this time next year. I've made headlines when she left her job at Google in 2012 to head Yahoo. It made her one of the most prominent women in Silicon Valley. Expectations were high in 2014. Vanity Fair even called her Yahoo's geek goddess. But now questions over her leadership and the direction of the country are clouding Yahoo's future. The company is expected to cut hundreds of jobs and may be exploring a possible sell. Was that Charlie Rose? Yep. Replaced by a woman, Christiane Amanpour. Okay. Anyway. Okay, so Marissa Meyer ran Yahoo for five years. And after a ton of internal criticism, a couple of investor groups calling for her resignation, and media coverage about how poorly she was doing, Meyer stepped down last year. There are binders full of women like this. Binders. Binders. Full. I know. Like Carly Fiorina at Hewlett Packard. You know, everything about me represented change. I was an outsider and I was a woman on top of it. That whole package together represented change. And then on top of that, I was leading a traumatic change. English Prime Minister Theresa May. The United Kingdom is leaving the European Union. And my job is to get the right deal for Britain as we do. Look, this isn't to say all women leaders contend with the glass cliff. But honestly, the only real exception we could think of is so successful, it's almost further evidence of how dangerous the glass cliff is. Yes, we're talking about the one and only Oprah. So in 1984, she got hired as the new host of a struggling local talk show called AM Chicago. Her first show was a disaster. Nothing worked. Everything fell apart. I'm cooking. I don't cook. And it was it was a mess. But her eventual success was so amazing and unreal that literally she just gives a really good award speech these days and people want her to run for president. I mean, I do. <laughs> so the Oprah So the Oprah story is not the typical story of high-profile women leaders. And obviously, it sucks to have all your mistakes be publicized and scrutinized and criticized again and again. But those women are a rare breed. High-profile, high-power. Yeah. But the rest of us watch them get raked over the coals for their mistakes in a way their male peers don't. That's going to reinforce our imposter syndrome, too, right? Mm -hmm. The message is, as a woman, if you aren't achieving Oprah-level perfection and success, you're clearly an imposter and don't belong. You are going over that glass cliff. Right. But imposter syndrome doesn't just get reinforced at work. For a lot of us, that reinforcement starts much earlier. You know, I spent a lot of my learning hood, my, my education, reading about white people and their heroic acts and never really seeing myself reflected in positive ways in what I was learning. You know, I I don't have to go too far to see negative images of myself or people of color displayed right back to me. 
This is Dina Simmons. She's the director of the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. And she was on a TED Radio Hour episode. It was called The Consequences of Racism. On that episode, she talked about her experience as a student of color in a mostly white school and how teachers, students, and even the curriculum reinforced the notion that she didn't belong. Part of what Simmons does now is look at whether students of color feel welcome at school and how that affects their education. And in her TED Talk, Simmons talks about how successful she's been in school and at work. But even with all that success... I have eternal imposter syndrome. Either I've been invited because I'm a token, which really isn't about me, but rather about a box someone needed to check off. Or I'm exceptional, which means I've had to leave the people I love behind. It's the price that I and so many others pay for learning while black. A study out of the University of Texas at Austin found, for people of color, instances of feeling like an imposter are a greater predictor of negative mental health outcomes than instances of discrimination. There are real impacts with imposter syndrome. Yes. But there's a whole other piece to this kind of insecurity, too. It creates a kind of feedback loop in our brains. Lisa Feldman Barrett is a neuroscientist and a distinguished professor of psychology at Northeastern University. Her most recent book is called How Emotions Are Made. And here's the cool thing. She's learned how to confront imposter syndrome head on. Just the other day, I was at a meeting and this very senior male professor who proceeded to explain to me, he never asked me what I did. He just told me about what he did. Now, keep in mind, Lisa's field is the human brain and human emotions. And her research has upended the way scientists think about emotions. I mean, to put it bluntly, Lisa Feldman Barrett knows her shit. He started to explain to me my own field without knowing it was mine, right? Mm. So he's like mansplaining <laughs> to me the science of emotion. And when he made a claim and I said, well, actually, I'm not really sure that that's, you know, that everyone would agree with that. And he cut me off and yelled really rather loudly, just keep an open mind. Can you imagine? Honestly, actually, yeah. I mean, it's not that surprising. No, not at all. <laughs> I totally can imagine. <laughs> But in that moment, I basically yelled back, no, you keep an open mind. That's a badass move. It is. But that badassery did not happen overnight. Now, in that moment, if it had been, you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago or even five years ago, I might have just sat there stunned and been kind of some combination of angry and also feeling imposter syndrome. But she worked through it. She knows her value these days. (laughs) Lisa Feldman Barrett says when our heart rates go up or our palms get sweaty, really when our nerves get the best of us, our brains start predicting why we feel that way and what could happen next. For example, when we're faced with a new task, our brains may predict that we're not up to the job and someone else will notice. Your brain is constantly making guesses and it uses your past experience in a combination of ways. Let me back up and say it this way. So when your brain is making a prediction about what's going to happen in the future, it's not asking what something is. It's asking, what is this going to be like? This event that's about to happen in a moment from now, not what is it, but what is it like? What's it most similar to in my past experience? Our brains make predictions largely based on what's happened in the past. And a lot of the time, our brains predict correctly. So, for example, if your brain is going to stand you up, it will raise your blood pressure before it stands you up. 
um, so that enough oxygen gets to your brain so that you um, don't fall over. But when things are more uncertain, like when you're about to lead a big meeting or you're starting a new job, your brain doesn't have a ton of past experience to draw on for its prediction. If your brain is unable to make a solid prediction, it's going to prepare itself to learn, to take in the new information that it was unable to predict. And that raises the arousal level of the brain and the body. Lisa says when you're about to learn something new, your brain gets ready by releasing chemicals that help your brain learn better. But those chemicals can also make you feel jittery and worked up. You know, colloquially, we would say anxious. Hmm. But what's really interesting is that it doesn't necessarily have to be anxiety. It could be that your brain is preparing you to do battle uh, with this really hard task uh, where there's a lot of uncertainty and you have a lot of learning to do. I guess I take it a little bit personally that (laughs) my brain is taking these feelings of discomfort or being in a new situation and predicting that it's because I don't know enough to be there. Why is my brain doing that to me? Well, I don't know about you personally. I can't. Fair. (laughs) I don't think I know you well enough to answer that particular question for you. But, um, you know, here's... um, Here's what, I, here's what I would say. The, the two most expensive things that your brain can do is move your body around and learn, actually, which requires, you know, a lot of physical changes in order for your brain to take in new information. And so it's the increase in arousal is a, a normal part of just how your brain works. OK, so we could have learned to make sense of that normal increase in arousal as some other emotion, like wonder or surprise. But instead, somewhere along the line, somebody labeled that increase in arousal for you as anxiety, or you learned to make meaning of that increase in arousal as anxiety, instead of learning um, to make any number of other emotions with that, um, with that arousal. So that was a lot of brain information. And I am going to recap because, you know, we want to get it right. Yes. So our previous experiences of not feeling like we belong or we're not up to the job, our brains predict that in part because we've been taught that. Right. By teachers who devalue us, by bosses who shush us, by randos who tell us to keep an open mind, our brains retain all that. So we end up telling ourselves we're not good enough in all kinds of ways. And as Jessica Bennett told us, there are career consequences for that. A woman will apply to an open job listing if and only if she thinks she meets all, meaning 100% of the requirements listed for that job. But a man will apply for a job when he meets just 60% of the requirements. So to think about that, like the number of jobs we are not applying for that men are probably that we're perhaps we're both unqualified for. But like (laughs) who's going to get the job? Not the person that doesn't apply. But imposter syndrome can be undone. It's possible to rewire our brains, to predict differently, to not predict we're imposters. Yes. Coming up next on Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace, how to go to battle with your own brain to defeat imposter syndrome. It's your favorite part of the show, Eula. It's tactic time. It really is. (laughs) So where should we start with the takedown of imposter syndrome? Well, Lisa Feldman Barrett said there's stuff you can do even before imposter syndrome hits you. One, get enough sleep. Eat properly. Exercise. Don't eat pseudo foods. I know I sound like I'm being a mother, but actually... (laughs) 
if you make it easier for your brain to deal with your body budget and keep it in balance, you are less likely to feel distress. That's the first thing. The second thing is remind yourself your heart's going to pound in your chest. You're, you're going to sweat. You might flush a bit. So remind yourself that that's normal. Remind yourself that this is your brain preparing you to do battle and the, that the optimal way for you to experience this is to get your butterflies flying in formation. Get your butterflies flying in formation. <laughs> oh, this is so great. So when you have butterflies in your stomach, get them all marching into battle. Um, I love that phrase. That phrase, <laughs> I wish I could take credit for that phrase, uh, but it's not, it didn't come from me. It actually was um, a phrase that my daughter's sensei, um, when she was taking karate, used. So she was trained by a 10th degree black belt. And when she was 12 years old, she was training for her, she was doing a black belt test. And he, he didn't say to her, calm down. He didn't say to her, don't be anxious. He said, get your butterflies flying in formation. And once you start having experiences where your butterflies are in formation, where you recognize your raised heartbeat and sweatiness as your body preparing for battle, your brain will start using those experiences to predict. You're retraining your brain to predict differently. Jessica Bennett has a tactic for retraining your brain, too. So remind yourself of the story of how you got to where you are today, because you're the badass hero of that story. Jessica does this when she feels like an imposter at her job at the New York Times. She reminds herself that she's the best person for the job. I, like, say that out loud to myself <laughs> sometimes to remind myself, but, you know... I am, and I got it, and they created the job for me, and it was a year and a half long hiring process, and I met probably 16 people in a series of survivor-like interviews for it. Like, if oh I got Lord. through that, I deserve to be here. Make yourself the hero of your story, but you can also look to the people around you and learn from what they do, including the white guys. Jessica looks at someone we'll call Josh. Josh is a pseudonym for a man Smart. that I used to work with who... You, I'm sure, have both heard that phrase, carry yourself with the confidence of a mediocre white man. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and um, I do personally. I personally it, subscribe to amazing. that. That's amazing. I mean, I, I tell myself <laughs> to do that a lot. I don't know if I have accomplished it yet, but I'm still working on it. Um, but that, Josh, that alone tells me you're not there yet. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm still working on it. So, Josh, in fact, was not mediocre. He was actually very smart, but he was also the most confident person I had ever met. Like he could walk into any room and pitch an idea that he had just pulled out of his ass and do it well and get everyone in the room to believe him and be nodding and be like handing him assignments and or budget for assignments by the end of the meeting. And so it became a joke among my friends at work and I that when something we were nervous about something or we needed to fight to get our story into print or whatever it might have been, we would ask ourselves, WWJD, what would Josh do? <laughs> and then we would try to channel Josh to exude his confidence when we were going in with our own lack of it. WWJD. Oh. We're going to have to pull out those old bracelets. Ah! I love that. So do as your office's most confident person does. Model your initiative after theirs. So now we have a whole arsenal for battling the imposters in our brains, but we also need tactics for when the world is trying to reinforce the notion that we don't belong. Yes. So Lisa Feldman Barrett, she got in front of that feeling. She was at a meeting at an unnamed tech company. And I walked into the room and I was the only woman in a meeting of 25 people. 
of 25 scientists they invited to this meeting. I was the only woman. And so in my opening statement, I mentioned it. Girl. When everyone was going around introducing themselves. I actually mentioned, I'm like, I'm sure it has not escaped your attention that I'm the only person in this room who is a woman. So let me tell you what that's going to mean. I'm sure you guys won't do this, but in other situations where I'm the only woman, it often happens that um, I'm, my, my opinion is ignored um, or diminished in some way, and I'll let you know if that's happening. Oh, my God. That's so crazy. If yeah. I feel like that's happening. Hell yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and I was like, and you guys, well, I'm sure won't be happy, you know, won't happen here. You guys, I'm sure you guys aren't <laughs> like that. And everybody laughed. But they all knew that I meant it. And I actually did it. Tell your team or the folks you're working with, you know what to expect. And you're prepared to call it out when you're dismissed or interrupted or otherwise told you don't belong. That's a bold move, though. It is. But honestly, no more bold than interrupting someone in a meeting after they've already asked you to respect when they have the floor. True. True. So when you put it that way, it sounds less scary and more necessary. Totally necessary. So listeners, now's the time to put these tactics into action. So if you identify and emulate the confident Josh in your office. If you remind yourself that anxiety is your brain preparing yourself for battle. Yes. Or... If you start feeling dismissed or disregarded in a meeting and you call people's attention to that. Okay, you guys. So share your story on our Facebook group. Just search BTSW and we'll send you our Butterflies Information Digital Badge. Yay. Oh my gosh. I love what this badge symbolizes, Jeannie. It's a perfect reminder to combat that imposter feeling. Prepare yourself for battle and don't run yourself off. Yes. (laughs) And you can check out the badge on Instagram at BTSW Podcast. And if you want to learn more about imposter syndrome, all the studies and research we talked about will be in our newsletter. Subscribe at KUOW.org slash BTSW podcast. My favorite newsletter. Yay. Well, before we go, I feel the need to say in this long uphill battle of fighting sexism at work, I'm still willing to pull my load if you're willing to pull yours. Same, Jeannie. Same. Battle Tactics for Your Sexist Workplace is a production of KUOW in Seattle. Our producer is Caroline Chamberlain Gomez. All the names. Yes, all the names. Jim Gates is our editor. And Brendan Sweeney is our managing producer. This podcast was inspired by the book Feminist Fight Club, written by the amazing Jessica Bennett. Mm-hmm. And our theme music was composed by Kessia Gordon. Keep up the good fight. We'll see you next time. Bye. But also, you know my name means end-user license agreement. So I, people go crazy who are internet nerds. That's like, amazing. <laughs> everybody assigned to you uh, at some point. I know. I know. It's very weird. I uh, I used to, I dated this guy for a second. And uh, the first time we met, we met like in a club, which is a terrible, terrible place to meet a person. But long story short, I said my name was Yula. And he was like, no, some one of my friends set you up for this. And I was like, I don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> and he kept going. And I was like, he was like, I'm in tech. I get it. And I was like, no, Jesus that's my Christ. name. This is getting weirder and weirder. <laughs>